First Peter chapter 3. Give careful attention to God's Word as it's read. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the Word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I remember decades ago, before I was married, that I was in a church and I heard a pastor preaching and he was talking about marriage and he said, one of the most powerful things that Christians can do to make a statement to the world is to have, and then he said, a pretty good marriage. I thought, a pretty good marriage? Now, I was a single guy, and I had no idea what it takes even to have a pretty good marriage, but I thought he was shooting really low. And I uh, then got married, and I've been married now for 32 years, and I still think he was shooting a little bit low. Even so, I do recognize that a pretty good marriage is remarkable in our world. That a pretty good marriage stands out in our world. And it does make a very powerful statement to have a pretty good marriage. But I don't want us to shoot for a pretty good marriage. We're called to have much better than a pretty good marriage, but a very good marriage. Now, Peter addresses marriage here, but he's not just saying, okay, forget what I've been talking about. I'm going to give you a standalone little manual on marriage. That's not what this is. This flows along with what we've been seeing. It's how to have a marriage in a hostile world. How to carry out marriage when people are looking at you as Christians, and they aren't Christians, and they're looking for things to pick on. They're looking for things to criticize. So in that sort of a situation, and particularly if one of the spouses is a Christian and the other is not, how should we handle this sort of situation. And I want you to see that this flows, and this is simply a subcategory of, a, of the major theme that runs through this middle part of First Peter. If we go back to chapter 2 and look at verses 11 and 12, 11 and 12 are, are the, the summary statement of chapter 2, and out of those two flow the rest of what we hear in this section, the main section of Peter. So he says in, in chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles 
to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the overall goal. Peter's saying, okay, you're sojourners, you're exiles, you are not at home. People are looking at you as Christians, as outsiders, and they are trying to find something to criticize. And he says, first of all, avoid the passions, the self-destructive passions that are characteristic of the world, so avoid those. And on the contrary, have such good conduct, such good conduct among the nations, that even if they're looking for something to criticize you about, they can't find it. And then one day, they too will glorify God because of what they see in you. Then he takes that general principle, as we saw last week, and he says, how should we deal with the government? How should we be as as citizens or subjects of the the political entity in which we live? That's the first question. And that's in verses, uh, let's see, 13 and uh, 13 to 15, no, uh, let's see. To 17. And then he turns it to labor situations, and particularly the question of, uh, of domestic labor, domestic slavery, forced labor. And he says, even if you find yourself in that sort of an unjust labor situation, and you have no way to get out of it, and there's no possibility of getting out of it, how should you live as a Christian in that? So first to government situations, then to an unjust labor situation. And then he says, what about marriage? Now think about this. These are three relationships that most adults would have had in their day and most adults have today. And that is, uh, we have a relationship with the government, we have a relationship, a labor relationship, we work, and then most adults, at least at some point in their lives, also are married. And so those are the three common relationships, and, and those are three relationships that tend to be, and especially in, in Peter's day, tended to be unjust relationships, where there was a powerful part dominating the less powerful part. So the the political authorities were dominating the subjects, uh, the masters dominating the slaves, and in the Roman era, the husbands dominating their wives, sometimes in a harsh way. So he's saying, what about these situations? How should you handle these situations? So today he turns to marriage, but I want you to see something. There is a common theme that runs through these. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, how does he start? What's the first word? Likewise. Likewise. Look at verse... That's speaking to wives. Then look at verse 7. How does he start? Likewise. Likewise. Okay, he's saying likewise, but we have to look back to figure out what he's saying to do, what, what what the likeness is. So we have to look back, and I think we will find it if we go back to chapter 1... Verse 17, where he says, in uh, verse 16, we'll back it up. He says, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. With fear throughout the time of your exile. Now go to chapter 2, verse 17. And he says here, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And then if you look at verse 18 of chapter 2, he says, servants, be subject to your masters. And the, 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 um, the translation here says, with all respect, possible translation, but it's the same 
a form of that same word, fear. And I think it would probably be better here, servants be subject to your masters with all fear, but not referring to fear of your masters. So he says in in chapter 1, he says, fear God, that is live in reverence for God, odd reverence for God. And then he says in the list of honor everyone, yes, love the brotherhood, fear God and honor the emperor. So the the highest one is to fear, to reverence, to adore God. Then he says servants. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Fear for whom? I think in the context we should say, fear for God. Then he says to wives, likewise. And then he says to husbands, likewise. So, so putting this all together, what's he saying? He's saying to us, don't fear humans, fear God. So, if you are citizens or subjects, don't fear the emperor, fear God, and respect the emperor. If you are, if you're slaves, uh, don't fear your masters, fear God, and be respectful and obedient to your masters. If you are wives, don't fear your husbands, fear God. If you are husbands, don't fear your wives, fear God. And he's saying to all Christians, in whatever relationships we find ourselves, above all, we fear God. We live out of a fear that is a reverence for God, and that orients all of our other relationships. So that's the likewise. Now, let's get to the instructions. First, he's in verse, six verses, he talks to the wives, and then in one verse, he talks to the husbands. Now, that's remarkable in and of itself, because in the first two relationships, he only talked to the, the, uh, the, the partner that was more vulnerable, didn't he? He spoke to subjects and he spoke to slaves, and here he speaks to the wives, that was the, that was the more vulnerable group, but then he has a word for the, the group that could have been the, the dominating group. He has a group, uh, a word for the husband. So that's remarkable that he addresses both. Okay, what does he say to the wives? On the one hand, on the one hand, uh, what he says to the wives would have been received as sort of commonplace advice. The Romans would have nodded their heads and said, yes, we like this Peter guy. He's saying that our wives should be subject to husbands. And that's how Romans would have approached it as well. However, I want you to see, some would accuse Peter of just accommodating himself to the the standards of the day and being too much a part of the culture, but that's exactly what he's not doing here. Because his motivation is not to conform to Roman standards. His motivation is the testimony that Christian wives have before their husbands. His motivation is the gospel. His motivation is the the reputation of Christians and of the Christ in whom they believe. Listen to what he says. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that... So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. This is simply a specific application of what he has told us time and time again. Our conduct, in addition to our testimony with our mouths, is going to win people over. If you look at... Uh, chapter 1, verse 15. He says, But you, I'm sorry, but as he who, who called you is holy, you should be holy in all your, what? Conduct. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 12. We just read this one. He says, Keep your, what? 
conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then if you look at chapter 3, verse 16, he says, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good... It translates it here, behavior, but it's the exact same word, conduct. Those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. You see, he's saying, this is how all Christians should act. Our conduct should be so exemplary that even if people are trying to criticize us, they can't find anything, and eventually they have to glorify God. He's saying, wives... This applies to you as well in a very specific way. That's the reason that Peter is talking to wives in this way. Now, Peter was also concerned that the newfound freedom of Christian wives would not bring Christianity into disrepute in the culture. Today, we who are Christians think of ourselves as being pro-marriage and pro-life and pro-family, right? In those days, there were... Uh, situations that would have made Christianity look like they were anti-marriage and anti-family. Um, if you look at chapter 2, I'm referring to a lot of verses in First Peter, but I'm trying to tie it all together. If you look at chapter 2, verse 16, Peter says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. What were the newfound freedoms that wives, Christian wives had? Well, in the day, we know from other sources, at least one other source, a Roman source, that wives were expected to worship the gods of their husbands. That was just expected. They were supposed to worship the gods of their husbands. These wives were saying, no. I'm going to worship the true God who has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. So they were, they were staking out their own uh, right to worship the God in whom they believe. And then, also, wives were not supposed to have any friends outside of their husband's friends. So he was the one who chose the gods. He was the one who chose the friends. Now, these wives had their own God whom they worshipped in Jesus Christ, and they also went to church. Guess what they did at church? Just what we do at church. What they do? They made friends. And so what did this look like to a Roman view? It looked like these people don't like marriage. These people are, are uh, inducing wives to be rebellious against their husbands and, uh, and to form friendships on their own outside of their husband's circles. And that's what inevitably would have happened. And Peter says, well, that's, that's part of it. But wives... We, we, you, need to, you need to convince the onlooking world that no, we're not against marriage. We're not trying to tear down the fa- family unit. On the contrary, live such amazing, amazing lives before your husbands that even if they don't believe, they see your conduct, your, your respectful, your, your chaste and pure behavior, and they are won over to the faith. That's the purpose that he's talking about here. This is a subcategory of all Christians. And in addition to that, in addition to that, he said, wives, he said, work on true beauty. Work on inner beauty. If you really want to win your husbands over, this is how you do it. Uh, Verse 3, he says to the wives, He says, um, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart 
with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So, what's he saying? Christian women in the Roman world, your standard for beauty is not whatever the Roman version of Cosmopolitan or Vogue or whatever these fashion magazines, don't ask me, but uh, whatever they are. I don't know if you even know the ones, but um, uh, that's not your standard. If you want a standard, it's a different standard. And by the way, it's interesting that the same three a- a categories that Peter mentioned are kind of the same three today. You know, what what are the external things that... that uh, Women focus on sometimes hairstyles, jewelry, and clothing. And we maybe have added some to that with our medical uh, abilities these days. But, but, um, but those are the basic things. And he says, look, don't, don't just focus on those things, okay? If you want to be beautiful, these things won't make you ultimately beautiful because these things fade. He says, you want to be imperishably, unchangeably, unalterably beautiful. Focus on the inner person of the heart. A gentle spirit, a quiet spirit, a respectful spirit, a pure spirit. That is unfading beauty. And that's how you adorn yourself before God and also before your husbands. Then he gave examples instead of the Roman samples. He said, Look at the holy women of the Old Testament. Look at how they made themselves beautiful. And then he picks out Sarah. And Sarah apparently was drop-dead gorgeous into her 90s because she was turning heads uh, even when she was quite elderly. But he doesn't focus on that. He says her beauty was an inner beauty. And she did not live an easy life. And Abraham was taking her all over the Middle East and giving up property and living in tents. and, And she... She submitted to that and she she followed his leadership as as God called him. And it says she called him Lord, which which has a range of meaning. It might mean something like sir or mister, but she was, even in the way she spoke to her husband, she was respectful. And he says, you, you women, you Christian women, whether you're Jews or Gentiles, you Christian women are her children, are their children if you... Do good, and then what does he say? And you do not fear anything that is frightening. So don't fear humans, don't fear your husband. Fear God and adorn yourself as Christian women. Now, um, I want you to see some things. He did this in the case of the the government and the, the slaves as well. But I want you to see a few subtle things he's doing. On the one hand, as I said, this was common wisdom that the Romans would have accepted as as right. On the other hand, he was subtly, subtly liberating wives from the oppressive structures of the day. How did he do that? Well, the first thing is, he addressed them. He addressed the wives. So here's Peter. He's a man, and he's writing a letter, and he has the audacity to address other people's wives. And that in itself could have irritated the husbands. They come home and say, oh, we got a letter from our pastor who's in Rome, and he gave us some instructions. And the husbands could have said, "What? who is this guy giving you instructions? But Peter was addressing, he was addressing the subjects of the, the Roman Empire, he was address, addressing the slaves, and now he's addressing the women as responsible moral agents. This was radical. And this was liberating to the women, saying, here's an, a word from God to you, ladies, to you. And this is for you. And in so doing... 
in saying, don't fear your husbands, fear God, he was placing the women and the husbands under God's authority. So he was subordinating both to God's authority, uh, not just the women to the men. So that was liberating as well. And another thing that's liberating here is this. He didn't give specific instructions of what the, the, the following the leadership of the husband, of what the submission would look like. Do you, see, do you see that? It's never spelled out in Scripture what that would look like. So what's that mean? It's left up to the couples to figure out. And that's liberating as well. That there wasn't a list of things that uh, the wives had to do. No, it was something that they worked out in the concept of their marriages. So all of these things are, are honoring and liberating to wives. Now, husbands, you ready? Likewise. What's the likewise? Likewise is fearing God above all things. Not fearing humans, not fearing what they'll think, what they'll say, but fearing God above all. He says to the husbands, first of all, live with your wives. That may seem unremarkable, but it, I think the, the subtext there is, if we, could, if we could spell this out, live with your wives and only with your wives. So this is, a, this is a call to faithfulness on the part of husbands. So you live with your wives, you stay with your wives, uh, and not with anyone else. And then he says something. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, according to knowledge. You need to understand your wives to live with them not only faithfully, but effectively. Now, uh, what is it exactly that we need to understand? He doesn't spell that out. He doesn't spell that out. But he does say this, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. What does that mean, the weaker vessel? Well, the fact that he refers to vessel indicates that he's referring to what? He's referring to the body. And this is something that the the most radical egalitarian, I think, needs to recognize, right? that men's bodies and women's bodies are constituted differently when it, it comes to size, uh, on average, and when it comes to muscle mass, on average. Uh, one is stronger and one is re- comparatively weaker physically, and that's what he's pointing to here. And you might think, why is he pointing that out? Isn't that kind of an obvious thing that everybody recognizes? Is that something that we husbands need to understand? Don't we already get that? It doesn't simple observation give us that, that there's a, a comparative strength and a comparative physical weakness, but it is something that we husbands sometimes forget, that we, we don't take into account that our wives have physical limitations, perhaps that are less than ours. And so sometimes we are not living with them in an understanding way because we are not taking into account the, the undeniable differences between men and women. And this also, this also, if you look at it the other way, if it's saying that they are the weaker vessel, then who is the stronger vessel? The husband, the man is the stronger vessel, and, and, and in an indirect way he's saying, husband, why are you stronger? What's the purpose of your superior physical strength? Is it to dominate over your wives, as many Roman men would have done, and men throughout all of history have done? Is that why you're physically stronger, so that you can take advantage of women and dominate over them? On the contrary. He's saying, in an indirect way to us men, if you are physically stronger, 
You have been given a gift by God that you are to use for the benefit of your wives. Far from being an oppressive structure here that Peter is laying out, this is a liberating structure for women. Think about this amazing, amazing, ingenious plan that God has come up with. He distributes sex between male and female roughly evenly. Isn't that, that's amazing in and of itself, isn't it? That they're about half and half in the world. A few more women than men. And to each woman who comes into the world not as strong as the other half of the population, he assigns a man called her father. And then, if that woman gets married, he assigns another man, because the father won't be there forever, and uh, assigns another man who is of the, the stronger, physically stronger half of the population to use his strength for the benefit of the woman. Isn't that an amazing structure? Isn't that... Beautiful that God has provided that for the benefit of the woman. I, uh, I'm a husband, and I also have two daughters. So our household was women. And I saw how that worked. I, I remember then when one of my daughters was first figuring out that there are boys and girls in the world, and she was coming into puberty and you know, pre-adolescence, and so she was beginning to notice, and people were beginning to notice her, and she said to me one day, Dad, you know, up at the, where we did our exercise and played at the club, the sports club near us, she said, Dad, there's a, there's a guy up there that I, I just don't like the way he, he looks at me, and I, I'm uncomfortable. I said, okay, I'll take care of it. <laughs> and so we were walking up to the club. I said, I'm going to go up and talk to him right now. And she got real nervous. She said, well, Dad, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to talk to him. And then she said, well, what if he doesn't respond well? I said, well, sweetheart, then I pound him into the pavement. (laughs) Now, I I was pretty sure I wouldn't have to do anything like that. I was pretty sure. And um, but the amazing thing to me was her response. This is what she did. She said, "Okay, daddy. And she went off and played. She ran off and played. Why? Because there was one member of that stronger half of the world's population that had just said, I'll take care of it. I'm physically stronger and I'll deal with one of my kind on your behalf so you can be free. You can say, okay, daddy, and go off and play. I saw that in a kind of a not very, uh, in maybe a, a trivial way. We were touring once and we were with this touring group and somebody said, hey, let's rent a boat and go around the bay. So this guy rents the boat, and then he hands the keys to me. He said, you ever driven a boat? I said, well, yeah, 40 years ago. I didn't mention that. He said, you want to drive? Sure. And so I did. Now, I have to say, this boat was an electric boat. It wouldn't get out of its own way. And it went, I don't know, five, ten miles an hour. It wouldn't, get, it wouldn't even, it wouldn't go straight. It was going so slowly. It was, that was the only hard part of it. But as I was driving, Sandy kind of snuggled up to me and she said, I'm glad you're driving. I'm glad you're driving because I feel safe. Now, anybody on that boat could have driven. But I thought, oh, so that's how it works, huh? <laughs> and yeah, that's how it works. That's how it works. She felt safe. Why? I mean, there wasn't even any danger. But she felt safe simply because I was apparently, at least, 
in control of the situation. Guys, that's why we've been made stronger. So that we can use our strength for the benefit of our wives. But you know what? Maybe not just our wives. Look at this. He says something curious here. He says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. But he uses a very unusual word for the woman. An uncommon word. We could translate it for the feminine one. For the feminine one. So he may not simply be referring to wives. He may be saying, husbands, men, you have a responsibility not only for your wives, but you have a responsibility for that other half of the population, for the feminine ones. That's why you've been put here on the planet, to use your strength for their blessing. Now, um, he also says this, and this is where the, the ground is leveled showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Heirs with you of the grace of life. Peter began uh, this letter by saying that we are heirs. He he says, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we have an unfading inheritance. Who has it? Well, Peter says, Christian women have it, Christian men have it, Christian wives have it, Christian husbands have it, on a level ground. They are co-heirs with us in the grace that is life. That is... um, Peter's instruction to husband, but he ends with the only negative motivation in this section. He says here, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Interesting. He says, husbands, you want your prayers not to be hindered? Then honor your wives. Because you, I should say we, should not think that God will honor our prayers if we are not honoring our wives. Uh, our, Our relationships with God cannot be okay if we are not cultivating our relationships with our wives in an understanding and in an honorable way. Now, this is the negative motivation, the kind of the warning, but the positive motivation of this entire, entire section and of the entire New Testament and of the entire Bible is in chapter 2, verse 21 and following where Peter, right in the middle of all this instruction, says, for to you... For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the overwhelming motivation for all of Christian conduct. That Christ has given Himself for us. That Christ the strong one has given Himself for the vulnerable ones. That Christ the righteous one has given Himself for the unrighteous ones. That Christ the sent one has gone after those who were straying in order to bring us back to God. So what's the goal here for us as Christians if we're married? The goal is this, that we would have such good marriages, that we would have such outstanding, respectful, pure, 
everlastingly beautiful wives, that we would have such faithful, honorable, uh, understanding, compassionate husbands, that the onlooking world would come to us and say, I've heard you Christians talk about Christ. And I've heard you talk about Him, that He came, and out of His great love, He gave Himself for His beloved. And I've, I've never believed you up to this point. But I've been watching you, and I've been looking at your marriages, and I have seen that sort of love lived out in your marriage. And I want that. Please, tell me more about this Christ of yours. Let's pray. Our God, may it be so. May people be able to look at our marriages and see Christ. See the love of Christ as we respect and honor and love and give and sacrifice. That they could see Your love in our lives and that they would come not to praise our marriages but to glorify You as they bow the knee as well before Jesus. I pray for the wives present, those who are wives currently and those who will be wives in the future, that they would be the most beautiful wives on the planet with an imperishable beauty that is precious in your sight and in the sight of their husbands. And I pray for the husbands who are here, both current and future husbands, that we would be faithful and honorable and pure and compassionate so that people could see us in the treatment of our wives and see a glimpse of the Savior who gave His life for His bride. And we pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.